When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another edition of Ducks Confidential. I'm James Crepia of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. I am the Oregon Ducks beat reporter, bringing you another edition of Ducks Confidential, where we go over the latest happenings in Oregon athletics. We start this week with Oregon women's basketball clinching its third straight outright Pac-12 regular season title. The Ducks taking care of business and officially clinching that Friday night against Washington State. This was a bit of a formality. It was very much a foregone conclusion for several weeks running now, just on the way that the Pac-12 standings were breaking and tiebreakers and other things, but it officially became official Friday night in what was a lopsided win over Washington State, an opponent who you have to imagine has got to be as thrilled as any that not only that Sabrina Ionescu is moving on to the WNBA after this season, but especially Ruthie Hebert is moving on after this season because there are few players who have tormented an opponent more than Ruthie Hebert has to Washington State over her career. And again, another big banner performance for her on Friday night against the Cougars, who Oregon quickly dismisses and again officially clinches that Pac-12 regular season title outright for the third straight year and the number one seed in the Pac-12 women's tournament. The season wasn't over Friday night, though, though the standings were already concluded and the first place seed was already concluded and many formalities and statistics were already done. The Ducks still had to wrap up their regular season against Washington on Sunday in a game that, again, didn't exactly have the most meaning in the standings and was not going to be terribly competitive in the long run. It wasn't, but Oregon, again, took care of business, started the game on a 7-0 run. Washington kept things competitive for a little while, as long as they could. Actually went on a 10-0 run to momentarily take the lead during the first quarter, but late in the first quarter, Ionescu fouled by Washington's Malgoza. And then after the foul actually gave, it was a bit of a strange moment in that Sabrina Ionescu is laid out on the court and she gave a two-footed kick to the rear of Washington's leading scorer. The, review, the referees reviewed the play, assessed an intentional foul on Sabrina for it. And then she made a couple of free throws. Malgoza made one of her two free throws. The quarter ends, but clearly a 
statement was made late in that quarter and then carried over into the second as Oregon ran Washington out of the gym in the second quarter. Extremely lopsided, extremely dominant play in that frame. And then from there, it was never competitive again. Oregon completes the regular season 17-1 in Pac-12 play. The one loss, as we all know, was at Arizona State, a team that very much shifted its mindset and mentality and approach after that loss, refocused in a big way, reeled off 16 straight wins, heading into the Pac-12 tournament, and has played as well, if not better than, any other team in the country over the last two months. Now, the question is, mainly, can Oregon cut down another set of nets in Las Vegas and win the Pac-12 tournament, which, as we all know, they did not do a year ago. They lost to Stanford in the Pac-12 tournament championship game. Can they do that? They should. They are not only because they are the number one seed, but because they have played better than everyone else in the Pac-12 conference this season. Markedly so. And when a team like Stanford can't close out the season and lock up the number two seed, is it a huge difference when you're the number two versus number three? Well, no, not exactly. Ultimately, you're going to be on that side of the bracket regardless. But your matchups are a little bit more difficult. And Stanford is not a team who is used to not being in either the number one or two spots in the Pac-12. They're number three this year to a UCLA team that also did not exactly play extraordinarily well. Played better than a year ago. Deserves to be ultimately ahead of Stanford. However, that is a UCLA team that has struggled against some better competition and frankly is nationally probably a bit overrated. But somebody's got to be number two and somebody's got to be number three. It is UCLA two, Stanford three. They will probably meet in a semifinal for the right to play Oregon in the Pac-12 tournament championship game. Can Oregon cut down another pair, a set of nets in Las Vegas? win not only the regular season title, but the tournament title, and avoid any kind of argument or debate that they should not be right in the same conversation with South Carolina and Baylor as far as the overall true number one, two, and three seeds are concerned for the NCAA tournament. And not as much has been made about this outside of myself and writing about this and speaking about this over the last few weeks, but it is going to ratchet up over the next week really two weeks ahead of Selection Monday. Oregon's resume is as accomplished as Baylor or South Carolina, and make no mistake about it, this is a three-team race for the national championship. Who ultimately lands up as the number four uh, true seed and last number one seed nationally will be of note, but nationally there are three powerhouse teams in women's college basketball this year, Oregon, South Carolina, and Baylor. And the Bears are the reigning national champions, and the Gamecocks, are a terrific team as well. However, if you go by resumes, there is no question, there is no debate to be had that Oregon's resume is markedly better than at least Baylor. There is a debate to be had with South Carolina, but because if you want to boil it down to those two teams have one loss and Oregon has two losses, then it's harder to argue as a Ducks fan that Oregon deserves to be ahead of South Carolina. They play in a tough league. They've played some tough opponents. They had to close out the regular season with a win over the number 12 team in the country in Texas A&M. They took care of business, and they had only one loss on the whole season. 
there's something to be said for South Carolina being the true number one team in America. And they have been in the polls for some time. And I would expect the NCAA selection committee to place them as such as long as they win the SEC tournament. But as far as Baylor is concerned, other than the fact that they are the reigning national champions and they were a terrific team a year ago and they are a terrific team again, but they are not the same team as they were a year ago and they lost Kalani Brown. And yes, their one loss came without Lauren Cox and they have played like a different team since she returned to the court. But the Big 12 Conference does not have another ranked team outside of Baylor and they have played extremely inferior competition compared to what Oregon has faced over the course of the season. Oregon has nearly twice as many top 25 wins, and that number is only going to go up, assuming that they go all the way through the Pac-12 tournament to the championship game and win the championship game. Even if Baylor closes out the season with nothing but wins here, they cannot add the caliber of wins that Oregon already has and close that gap. And for fans who want to get into, well, is there really a huge difference between being the number one seed in Portland as the true two versus the true three? Yeah, there is a difference. I'm not going to tell you it's a massive difference, but there is a difference. Because all of your matchups, all of your seed lines are impacted based on your true overall seed. And Oregon is going to be hosting the first two rounds. And no matter what happens in Las Vegas, will be headed to Portland and the Portland Regional as the top seed in the Portland Regional. Their resume is so far and away ahead of anybody who would even be in the argument that it's silly. Even if somehow, let's say, Oregon were to lose to in its very first game in the quarterfinals, they would still be a number one overall seed. They just might be the true four seed in the NCAA tournament rather than the three or the two. But who you get matched up with as a result of what your true seed is, does have an impact and does matter. Yes, Oregon is, in effect, not only playing two home games by hosting in the NCAA tournament as a top 16 seed overall and gets the geographic preference of playing in Portland and what, let's not kid ourselves, will be a de facto home games in the Sweet 16 and presumably the Elite Eight and regional final and the hopes of making it to the Women's Final Four for a second straight year and an appearance in New Orleans. But it is a matter of who you're matched up with along the way, including in the Final Four should you reach it. Because, for instance, if South Carolina is clearly the number one overall team in America, as they appear to be, then two and three would be Baylor and Oregon. And those are teams who met in the national semifinal a year ago, and as we all know, Baylor won and went on to win the national championship. But if you are the true two versus the true three, who you are matched up with and who is in your bracket is different. It matters. Who could challenge you in the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight matters. And I am not going to begin to suggest that either one of these teams will not make it to the Women's Final Four. To me, this is a three-team race, and all three of these teams are going to make it to the Women's Final Four. But Baylor has not been able to show week in and week out against high-caliber competition that they are capable of handling whatever's thrown at them. They are capable of handling the Big 12 Conference, which is not competitive and doesn't have a particularly deep talent pool by way of teams or individual players. But we are not able to say at this point that Baylor can just handle any test that's thrown at them. 
They can't say that. We can't say that either. It's unknown, and that's why the true seeds, and ultimately starting with the Pac-12 tournament, Oregon taking care of business and cutting down another pair of nets, is its first test and first task at hand. Should the Ducks do so? The conversation over the following week will be and needs to be whether or not Oregon not only deserves to be higher than Baylor, there could be an argument with South Carolina because sooner or later, the data has to matter. They are the number one team in RPI. Their strength of schedule is far stronger than Baylor's is. And their wins as a collective, they are 7-1 and one against the RPI top 25. That blows away Baylor in particular. So where the Ducks end up in the Pac-12 tournament by way of their end result, do they win and cut down another pair of nets and win the tournament title and the auto bid that comes with it? Not that they need it, but do they win it and seal that first and foremost? And secondly, that then shifts the argument and debate and discussion for the following week leading into Selection Monday as to whether or not the Oregon women deserve to be ahead of Baylor. And at this point, by any objective measure, looking at the data, looking at RPI, which is the measure in the women's game, looking at strength of schedule, and looking at top 25 wins, Oregon has it in a landslide. But the AP poll voters have defied that math to date. And while they are not included in the NCAA Selection Committee's process, the only data that we have from the Selection Committee came prior to that game against UConn at halftime when Oregon was well behind Baylor and South Carolina. A lot has changed since, but we don't know if it's changed in the eyes of the Selection Committee. We'll find out in the days and weeks ahead exactly what the thinking is as it comes to the Oregon women's basketball program. To the Oregon men's team, which defeated Oregon State to split its season series and stop a three-game losing streak to the rival Beavers on Thursday night. A win that, while it matters for rivalry purposes and bragging rights purposes and some degree of legacy uh, for a player like Peyton Pritchard in particular, ultimately for the season, the here and now and what mattered about Thursday night's game for the Ducks was It kept them right in the thick of the Pac-12 race for the number one overall seed and for a regular season conference championship. That matters. That matters a whole lot in a league that has shown on an almost weekly basis the cliche and adage that anybody can beat anybody. The Pac-12 has shown that perhaps as much, if not more than any power league this season. It is a deeper league. It is a more competitive league, not only than a year ago, probably over the last couple of years. It is a stronger league, top to bottom, probably a better collection of coaches, certainly a better collection of overall players. And when a team like UCLA, who had the wheels falling off in non-conference play and even early in Pac-12 conference play, go back to UCLA's trip to Eugene where they looked like a team bordering on disarray, looked lost, looked like they really didn't know how to play together. To completely flip the switch under first-year coach Mick Cronin to where now they control their own destiny for a share of the Pac-12 regular season title is a remarkable change. Credit, all the credit in the world to Mick Cronin for getting his players to see the light 
and understand what he was preaching and saying to them. That it was harsh. It was not rosy. It was not sugar-coated. He held nothing back regarding his team's level of play, commitment, intensity. It was bordering it was bordering on Mike Leach level of criticism of their own players and there are plenty of Pac-12 fans who thought Leach was a bad guy for making the kind of comments he made over the years and not understanding that it was motivational tactics at play. Well, Mick Cronin employed very much the same things and was very honest about his program and very honest about what was happening on the court with his players. And in the long run, the players adapted. The players saw the light. The players realized and bought in to what Mick Cronin was bringing to that team and that program by means of their identity, their systems, and how they had to play in order to be competitive and win games. And credit, first and foremost, to Mick Cronin for sticking to that vision and plan. Credit to the players for realizing and buying into it. And the UCLA Bruins, who two months ago were very much a outside-looking-in team, are now thoroughly in the conversation not only for a regular season Pac-12 title, either outright or in a share with Oregon, depending on how things break this last weekend coming up, but because of their early season struggles, they were and probably still are deserving of being on the outside looking in on the NCAA tournament. Well, not anymore. If they were to win a share of the Pac-12 regular season title, they may find their way into the NCAA tournament regardless because at some point you have to say, does it even really matter? They struggled early, but they have so clearly turned this season around that is it really fair to assess this team and criticize and hold against them things that took place in November and December and maybe even early January compared to what they have become over the better part of February. They're a very different team. And again, credit to them for that. But because they have so markedly improved and put themselves in a better position, UCLA may very well find its way into the NCAA tournament, hard as that is to believe. And as a result, it may come at the cost of a team like Stanford who comes into Oregon, the, the state of Oregon, has to play both Oregon State and Oregon this upcoming weekend, as does Cal. But Cal certainly is not in the NCAA tournament conversation. They're not in the postseason conversation at all. Stanford is a team who looked like it was very much headed to the NCAA tournament this year. They may not be because while they still have a fairly strong resume in the grand scheme of things, they also have suffered some losses here, and they are not the same caliber team as they were when Oregon played them in Palo Alto. They have had some struggles, and they now have a harder time and path to the NCAA tournament short of putting together a what would be a terrific weekend series for Stanford. If they were to come into the state of Oregon, beat Oregon State, beat Oregon, and earn a couple of wins in the Pac-12 tournament, perhaps the Cardinal find their way into the NCAA tournament. But they are a fringe team. And go back to, again, when the Ducks played in Palo Alto, Stanford was a top 30 team in the net rankings. That is no longer the case. Stanford needs help. Oregon needs to beat Stanford and Cal to earn no less than a share of the Pac-12 regular season title. If they do share it with UCLA, they will be the number one overall team and number one overall seed in the the Pac-12 men's tournament. 
if they are a game behind or a half game behind UCLA in the overall standings, but tie with Arizona State, they would get the heads-up tie break for the number two seed in the Pac-12 tournament because they have the win over UCLA and UCLA and Arizona State split. So lots to pay attention to heading into this weekend as the Oregon men's team looks to clinch no less than a share of the Pac-12 regular season title. Oregon softball wrapping up its non-conference road schedule this past weekend in Tulsa and Stillwater, Oklahoma. A 3-2 and two trip overall for the Ducks softball team, which won its games over competition it was supposed to be, but lost its games to competition that was far more competitive. And that is where Oregon softball finds itself at this point in juncture. Heading into its first home games of the season, where it hosts a tournament this weekend, coming up with, again, competition, who the Ducks are very, very much supposed to beat in Seattle, Loyola Marymount, and Portland State in particular. But then going on the road to play St. Mary's before opening Pac-12 play on March the 13th against Cal on the road at Cal. But Oregon softball is a markedly better and deeper team than they were a year ago, which is hardly unexpected. We know very much about the depth issues that the Ducks were experiencing a year ago. They're 17-2 and after 19 games. That is about as strong as one can reasonably ask for. Oklahoma State is a nationally ranked team. That was a loss on Saturday for the Ducks that went to extra innings, and both teams scored multiple times in both the 8th and ninth inning, mainly because of the inherited runner rule the new rule change in college softball where when the game goes to extras, they place a runner on second base in an effort to try and end the game. And while I certainly understand the thought process behind it, I personally am not very much a fan of this concept and rule and idea because I think it fundamentally changes the entire approach to the game. That you play seven innings of the game one way. And it may just happen to be a pitcher's tool. Or it may happen to be an offensive, explosive kind of game to then almost make it gimmicky and throw a runner on second base just in an effort to end it. I am not very much a fan of this myself. I I don't. I really didn't like this rule concept and idea behind it. I thought you just continue to play the game the way it was played. One team is eventually going to win, and another team is going to lose, and that and that's it. That's all there is to it. But both teams played by the rule. Both teams scored multiple times. Oklahoma State closed it out, whereas Oregon left the bases loaded in the ninth inning. And while they scored in both the eighth and ninth innings, they left the bases loaded. Oklahoma State did not. They cashed in. They win 5-4 on Saturday. Earlier on Saturday, a game that, frankly, Oregon probably should have won in terms of just talent. And Louisville's a pretty talented team. And there are players there who transferred in from other programs, and they are not a ranked team, but they're not a bad team by any stretch. A 4-3 loss is hardly an embarrassment. But it is a game that Oregon, as the number 10 team in America, and they were probably a little overrated, not a knock on them, nothing that they can do to control the human polls, but I think the human polls probably got a little carried away with Oregon's record because they had started off undefeated starting off with wins at the Puerto Vallarta Challenge down at Mexico, sweeping its time at the Houston tournament, 
and then winning at the Mary Nutter Classic in Cathedral City, California. But the toughest competition that Oregon had played heading into this past weekend was Mississippi State and Northwestern. And they won 7-2 against Mississippi State at Mary Nutter, and they beat Northwestern 6-3. And Northwestern was the number 25 team in the country, but didn't have a particularly impressive overall schedule. And credit where it's due, Long Beach State also going back to the Pertivire to challenge a 4-1 win over Long Beach State, who is historically a pretty strong team and a team that ended up beating, I believe, since beating Oklahoma. So Long Beach State, always a solid team, generally speaking, the last several years in college softball. Having said all that, with the wins that Oregon had to its credit heading into this past weekend, the idea that they were the number 10 team in the country, merely because they were one of the only undefeated teams left in the country, was probably a little bit getting ahead of themselves from the pollsters, not from the Ducks, because somebody needed to really go over their resume and their wins to date with a little bit more of a fine-tooth comb merely than saying, well, they're undefeated, so they have to be a, you know, a top team like that. Again, they're good. I'm not telling you they're not good. They're good. They're better than they were a year ago. They have a much deeper pitching staff. They're hitting quite well in a couple of positions in particular. They've got a lot going for them, but the idea that this was the number 10 team in the country going into this past weekend was probably a little bit of a stretch, and I think the loss to Louisville and especially the loss to Oklahoma State showed that this team is better but still has a long way to go, including during this season. But to the big picture, heading into their first home games again against Seattle starting on Friday afternoon, 3.30. You got a doubleheader with Seattle starting at 3.30 and then Loyola Marymount at approximately 6 o'clock at Jane Sanders Stadium in the Oregon tournament. The Ducks will drop in the polls, probably not enormously, may, may flip, frankly, with Oklahoma State from 10 to 15 kind of thing. But heading into Pac-12 play, no matter what happens this upcoming weekend, because these are all games that Oregon should win and win handily, the Ducks are basically in the same spot today as they were heading into the season as it relates to the Pac-12. They are a better team than the bottom half of the Pac-12. And they're a team that is going to be able to be competitive, but is probably not as deep and talented, certainly not, than UCLA, than Arizona, or Washington. The argument heading into the year was going to be, is Oregon ahead of Arizona State? And those could be teams playing for hosting a regional in the NCAA tournament, potentially, potentially. And because Arizona State lost one of their better players right before the season started, and Oregon has gotten off to a very hot start, I think at this point, Oregon has kind of positioned itself as the fourth place team in the Pac-12. And look, they still got the entire conference schedule and slate ahead. A lot of things could happen. Injuries could happen around the league or elsewhere. Uh, Players could suddenly develop. Players could get on hot streaks, cold streaks. Pitchers could do well or not. A lot of games to be played. But at this point, Oregon softball at number 10 was probably a little bit far-fetched. That said, are they a top 25 caliber team? Absolutely. I think it probably falls somewhere in that 12 to 17-ish range nationally at this point. And we'll learn a lot more as Pac-12 play starts later this month. But again, I expect that at the beginning of Pac-12 play, for Oregon to do well against Cal and Stanford heading into the end of March and a trip up to Seattle and Washington, that could be very telling because three of the first four series for Oregon softball, the Ducks will be a 
heavy favorite as far as overall talent and ability and depth. They're a better team than Cal, Stanford, or Utah. That Washington series and what the Ducks would should hope for is a one team gets two and the other team gets one kind of split, and it's not a sweep uh, by Washington, certainly. But as long as Oregon gets one of those three, it's not a bad trip. If it were to take two against a top 10 team like Washington, that would be spectacular and very much place the Oregon softball team on a much higher uh, pedestal than they are presently. But again, long way to go. That's where things are at this point. Oregon baseball wrapping up a four-game weekend series against Milwaukee and sweeping all four games. So Oregon baseball getting off to a tough start to start the season, coming home and reeling off seven straight wins against Nevada and Milwaukee. Now, Mark Wazikowski would be the first one to tell you that neither one of those opponents is particularly potent and loaded with talent. But ultimately, this is a team, especially because of the youth and freshmen and new players on this team, that had to do a lot of learning. Had to do learning about this staff. Had to do learning of systems and style of play and all sorts of things. Learning how to play together. And especially for young players, learning how to win at this level. Learning the strategy and the finer points of the game at this level. And regardless of the level of competition, Oregon still had to make some real improvements and strides in teaching those younger players and getting those younger players reps at bats, opportunities on the mound in competitive and, yeah, even some non-competitive spots. Because there's no way that you're going to know when Pac-12 play arrives against national powers. How are you going to know? How is Mark Wazikowski and that staff going to know? who they can count on when they go down to Los Angeles to take on UCLA or when they go to Lubbock, Texas to take on Texas Tech or when they play Oregon State, either in Corvallis or in Eugene or Arizona or Stanford. How are they going to know who they can count on until and unless they go through some games and some series like what they just did? The answer is you're not. So you have to play those kind of series, again, even if it means weaker competition, because you have to be able to get a barometer of who you got and what you're working with. And certainly, there are some players that have gotten off some very, very nice starts for Oregon baseball, starting with Aaron Zavala, who came through in a couple of really, really big at-bats and big performances this weekend against Milwaukee in particular. He had a strong showing. The pitching staff, top to bottom, but especially the starting pitchers, all had strong showings this weekend. Hunter Bro out of the bullpen has been spectacular. Colby Summers as well. Both of them doing very well to start this season, and they were doing well in that opening weekend in Arizona as well. So the bullpen has done well and continues to do well, and there's more and more tape out there on them. Even against inferior competition, those players are starting to see more tape. Those teams are starting to see more tape. There's more to see. There's more to understand. There's more to scout on bullpen players like that. And what's happening? Oregon is still getting the same results. So those are the positives for the Ducks. That said, 7-2 wins, 6 nothing, 6-1. On one hand, are you going to take them? Are you going to complain about winning by five and six runs? No. But are they a team who probably should be able to do even more damage on a consistent basis 
against teams like Milwaukee because some of these games, they scored and they scored in bunches. For instance, 6-1 win, they scored two early. Well, neither team scored for five innings. And then Oregon got into things in the seventh and eighth. All right, part of it is that's baseball. A 6-0 win, five runs in the third, and one run in the seventh. All right, you end up at 6-0, but there's only two innings that you scored. Now, the 7-2 win, a little bit more consistent offense early on, two in the first, three in the third, two in the fourth. All right, you chip away, and keep on adding runs over and over and over again and give your starting pitcher more and more run support. That's the kind of overall performance that Oregon's probably looking for a little bit more than one big inning and then just kind of sitting back a little bit. Against inferior competition like Milwaukee, probably want a little bit more consistency. That said, to the big picture, Oregon baseball reeling off seven straight wins, now at 7-4. and four. Again, Aaron Zavala doing quite well. Kenyon Yovan, Gabe Matthews all coming through quite nicely at the plate. And the starting pitching staff and back end of the bullpen, quite solid. There are still some questions to answer. The middle infield in particular, got a couple of players in Sam Nowitzki and Josh uh, Kasevich, who have not hitting well so far. Tanner Smith gotten off to a slow start. Evan Williams had a couple of solid uh, at-bats and a couple of solid performances over this past weekend, but his batting average also still below 160 on the season. So Oregon has guys hitting very hot, has some guys hitting very cold, has to find a little bit more equilibrium throughout the lineup. And as the pitching staff is concerned, I can say, I think the back end of the bullpen is doing quite well with Somers and Bro in particular. Andrew Masiello also coming through nicely. But you start looking at the starting pitching rotation and Brett Walker doing well, Peyton Fuller doing well, Robert Allstrom coming through nicely, and Cullen Kafka, some of the numbers are still bent because of the season opening performance. But stronger, better performances for him the last couple of starts. Other things to take care of, middle relief in particular, one of the relievers in particular, but nobody's hitting on all cylinders just yet. We'll see how Oregon baseball does as it heads to Hawaii this upcoming weekend on the road. And then right after that, Oregon baseball starts Pac-12 play at UCLA on March the 13th. So both baseball and softball, not far off from conference play starting. Be very interesting to see how both of them do in the weeks ahead. And that wraps up this edition of Ducks Confidential. Again, subscribe and find us wherever you get your podcasts.